Hey, this is Robbie Shaw. This is Patrick Balsley. And I'm Sam Hampson. And this is Champagne Problems, where we come together to explore the gray areas of drinking. This is a judgment-free zone where we can all take a look at how we make decisions about our relationship with alcohol. So grief is an interesting topic. We associate it with losing someone uh, we love. You know, that's, that's kind of the typical story we hear when we hear about someone grieving. We've heard about the steps of grief, the stages of grief, and a lot of those are emotional responses to the event. We absolutely experience the same emotions that we do while grieving in many other experiences. For example, any, any major change in life, career change, behavioral change, relationship changes, there is a sense of loss and there are emotions associated with that. Now that is by definition considered grief. So I just want to talk a little bit about the normalization of the grieving process as opposed to leaving it to the drastic experience of just losing someone you love. Mm -hmm. There's more to it than that. Yeah. And yeah. we experience I mean, it on many more levels than we, we think we do. Yeah, I mean, I think the key here with everything that we're talking about is the recognition of it. And with that comes some sense of normalization, you know, the fact that we actually know what's happening um, emotionally as we're going through this stuff. And I love the term, or when people say everyone grieves differently, mm -hmm. right? Because it's like there's no specific way that you have to do this, but everyone does it. Mm -hmm. So, like, there's kind of an expectation around, like, this is a normal thing to kind of go through. And bereavement is usually used, you know, in relationship, again, to the death of a loved one. And bereavement just refers to the period of loss during which grief and mourning can be experienced. So, mm -hmm. a lot of times we put this, like, timeline, too, on grief or bereavement where it's like, oh, well, I should be over that by now or that should yeah. look different. Or there's a lot of shoulds around how... I shouldn't how be feeling like this. Right. But I always associate it, even when I do look at death of a loved one or I do look at really big losses in my life, I've always seen grief as an opportunity to honor the amount of space that that thing took up in my life. Ooh, mm. I love that. So it doesn't have to be a person, right? No. Like I can grieve my grandmother and say like she took up so much space in my life that I spend these emotions honoring that. Yeah. Right? And it's the same thing if I remove... Pasta. I would I mean, never I think do that's, that. I think that's, really, never. I, would I never think that's do a that. really, really appropriate framework for, you know, starting this conversation. Thank you. Mm -hmm. You're welcome. <laughs> what comes to mind for me is is identity. Mm. You know, I mean, when you, you, we speak of all these different things that we, you know, hypothetically are losing, and yeah, it could be a loved one, or it could be a job, or it could be a, a girlfriend, or a boyfriend, or a food, or a behavior. But those are often associated with our identities, or we create an identity around our relationship with that. So when it's eliminated or chosen to be, you know, removed, there is a sense of loss. And just, if you need a permission slip, here it is. Just because you chose the change that resulted in loss does not mean that you are not able to or permitted to grieve that loss. So if, if I choose to leave a job or I choose to leave a relationship or I choose to remove alcohol, just because that's my choice and I see value coming out of it 
or that I'm at least removing something that's detrimental, it doesn't mean that I don't get to grieve it just because I chose it. Yeah, and it definitely doesn't mean you can control the emotions around, you know. Because grief is a normal reaction to loss, right? It's something that we should expect, not judge when it happens. So today we are joined by Kim Bogert, my friend from junior high. Uh, How funny is that? You know, I look back at my junior high years and leading up to this this episode, I've told a little bit about those experiences, and you're probably the only one who knew me back then. Yeah. If I can recall correctly, I was a little bit of an asshole, so you could maybe clarify that or... Please. Or not. My lips are sealed. Please. Unseal them for oh, us today. <laughs> so Kim is in studio with us today, which is very exciting for us. Kim is a grief and meditation coach. What we're going to discuss with Kim today is other forms of grief, uh, how symptoms or emotions that uh, are associated with the grieving process can come from other events and experiences. So hello, Kim. Hello. Welcome to the studio. We're Very happy to have you here. Thanks for having me. Let's start kind of high level, dig into kind of traditional grief and the traditional grieving process that most people think about when that word comes up. Would you mind speaking a little bit on that? Well, first of all, it's a topic that we don't really talk about at our dinner tables or, you know, in our friend groups. It's this taboo topic that I'm so glad to bring to this table today, really. It's something that needs to be talked about because we all experience grief at some point in our lives. But I think that traditionally when we're talking about grief, what we think about is losing a loved one, right? And the definition that I'm bringing to us today is that grief is the normal and natural reaction to loss and also the conflicting feelings caused by the end of or change in a familiar pattern or behavior. So when you think about it that way, we're experiencing levels of loss oh, all, the, all, all the time, all all day, all the time, starting at a very young age. Huh. That's really interesting. We are consistently discussing making changes in our lives. And, you know, we're coming from a wellness perspective and, and kind of looking at what's serving us, what not. Often, you know, in this podcast, we're discussing alcohol. But is there grief associated with making behavioral changes that we are so commonly used to. Yes, of course. I mean, look at this past year and being in a pandemic and um, all the losses that we've suffered during this past year of not getting to be around our friends or or family or, you know, not going to the regularly scheduled coffee shop on the way to work or whatever it is. All of those are changes of behavior, changes of patterns that create grief within our lives. So no wonder that anxiety is high right now. Substance use is high right now. I know that um, substance counselors are booked solid these Mm -hmm. days, right? Don't we know it? (laughs) There are over 40 types of losses that are identified as producing grief, um, including like divorce, uh, abuse, financial changes, pandemic. Yeah, (laughs) Um, yeah. Moving, going to college, even even happy events can be can create grief yeah. just because it's a change in your life. When we say grief, what are we talking about? 
Um, so they're different for everybody. I mean, there's no there's no timeline. Dr. Kubler Ross came up with these five stages of grief. When you've been diagnosed with a terminal illness, then these experiences you're expected to go through in this order. Your denial is the first one. You're not going to believe that. But when you've when you've experienced a loss of a loved one or loss. Um, in any way, then you're not in denial necessarily. So you're not going through that stage at all. And then the other ones are kind of hit or miss, like some people experience anger. I will tell you that the most common ones are that I've been going through personally in the past few months. I lost my mom. So I'm in the, when Robbie called me, I'm like, I don't know if if I'm your gal. I'm in the midst of grief myself. The biggest things that I have felt are roller coaster of emotions, sleeplessness, mm-hmm. you know, so that's one of the big ones, yeah. change in eating habit, habits, uh, reduced concentration, numbness is a big one. Like physical or emotional? Emotional, num- yeah. just not feeling anything right. emotionally. It's all across the board. Yeah. But what we're taught is to just sweep it under the rug and keep on going, right? Yeah. We're taught very young, these, these kind of myths of you know, keep on going. It's okay. We tell our kids when they come home crying from school, like, it's okay. Don't cry. Yeah, Tomorrow is another day. Yeah. Stiff upper lip. Yeah. So what are some of the things as a grief coach that, you know, you kind of coach your clients to to look for, to identify their grief? Like, what's the beginning stages of, of identification? The first part is just having some sort of awareness around, yeah, some of those things are going on. I'm not sleeping well. I'm feeling anxious all the time. Those are some indicators of something's going on when you're experiencing these symptoms and then becoming aware of what's going on. Um, and then that's when you want to look at what's behind the door. Now that you've identified these feelings of grief, mm-hmm. where do you go from there? So when somebody comes in to talk about grief with me and what they've experienced, the first things we do are talk about the kind of debunking old beliefs of what you've been taught. And I mentioned one of them was the don't feel bad. Mm -hmm. We've been told don't feel bad all our lives when something has gone wrong. Another one is to replace the loss. We all hear like, I lost a child and I heard from people, it's okay, you can have more children or at least you have one. Mm. So we're taught these things. Another one is grieving alone. If you're going to cry, go to your room and cry. <laughs> or Yeah, you know, don't, bring, I'll, I'll don't g- bring us down. I'll yeah. g- yes, or I'll <laughs> give you something to cry about. <laughs> yeah. um, and then, yeah. like we said before, the stiff upper lip of you know being strong. You've got to be strong, be strong for others, for your kids, for your mom, whatever it is. The last myth that we hear a lot is that time heals all wounds. And I, it, it's really what you do in that time that is, that is mm-hmm. healing. So the, the second thing is to recognize what we're doing to cover up these feelings of grief. What are the, what are the short-term energy release behaviors that we're exhibiting? Is it, is it drinking? Is it sleeping too much? Is it um, eating? Is it exercising too much? Even, you know, positive behaviors can be covering up grief. So it's kind of unpacking what we've learned, where we've come from, and what we're doing to cover up the signs and symptoms of grief. Those are the first two things that we do. When somebody wants to make a change around their alcohol use, I mean, there's, when we've talked about it in several other episodes of this podcast about all the things that would come with that, you know, with changing maybe your social network, your, your normal routine, even the changes in, in feeling 
that are going to occur with you not having that alcohol to kind of soothe the anxiety or stress of a long day. And we're looking at this from a, from like a loss of, of, of alcohol use. Mm -hmm. What are you, what are some of the things that you would expect somebody to go through? It's a big change. Isolation, I would imagine being a big one because a lot of your social life, if it's been around drinking, you're going to have to shift some things in there and you're going to feel isolated and alone. So that that would be the first thing I would say. That topic is very fresh, I think, right now in a lot of people. And when we discuss alcohol consumption and the normalization of it yeah. in our culture and, and, and society, as you kind of pick it apart, it's, it's very much a part of our identity. When you and I were talking previously, we discussed identity changes mm-hmm. and how that can create emotions associated with grief. Yeah. I recently had a client who, you know, alcohol is, is creating a lot of distress in his life. In the common man, you'd think eliminating that would be a good thing, right? We're eliminating something that is hurting me and my, yeah. you know, relationship, whatever it is. My client was sad about the prospect of having to give this up. Who am I without the alcohol? Exactly. Yeah. I think there's quite, what we're talking about, quite a few emotions associated with an identity change that drastic. Yeah. Yeah. I think recovery can often be about dealing with that hole in the soul. Once you remove that, you know, where are these feelings coming from that have you grasping for the alcohol, you know, coming from a place of... Uh, I'm not good enough or, you know, I'm too much or whatever the belief is that had you drinking in the first place. Now you take away alcohol. Let's deal with what what that hole in the soul actually is. So there's some self-discovery in there and a lot of self-compassion and nurturing along with it. I have a question. So, you know, Typically, we look at grief almost from like a shock perspective, like it's like an unanticipated yeah. loss. Like if we're preparing to lose something, mm. like what are and we kind of know that it's coming or we're doing it intentionally. Is there another way to look at grief? What are some of the tips or like action that we can take to prepare ourselves for that process to make it, you know, a little run a little bit smoother? Wouldn't that be nice? Wouldn't that be lovely if we could prepare ourselves for the grief that's going to happen? (laughs) And unfortunately, it just doesn't work that way. And I will relate this to my mom dying. We knew she was dying for the past year, really, and then certainly in the past uh, or the the couple of months leading up to her death. And we thought that that would make it somehow easier. And being in the world of grief, you know, I'm, I'm sitting here thinking like, all right, well, I, I've been through a loss before, a loss of a, a child, a loss of a grandparent, pet, divorce. I, I've been through some losses. Like, certainly I've got this. And yet, this was the biggest beast of them all. And, per, and perhaps because and to some degree, I haven't dealt with the the past losses of my life. I haven't fully completed those past losses. So, you know, it compounds. Hmm. Grief definitely compounds. Mm. This is why it's so important of recognizing these losses to be grief, even as small as we think that they are, recognizing them so that we can complete them so that we're not compounding grief as we go because we're bound to experience more losses in life. So I don't know that there's that there's much preparing except for just educating yourself and being willing to talk about 
grief and not sweeping it under the rug is, is like, well, it's, I'm not supposed to feel this way. Yeah. Or I don't want to feel, well, I don't, don't want to yeah. feel like this. I don't this. like it. Yeah. It's have, too, it's too hard. It I, hurts too bad. Therefore I don't want to feel it. Yeah. I have, a, I have another question. I've, I've never, cause I've never really <laughs> thought about, thought this through. When you say like completed the grief, how do we know when a process of grief is completed? How do we differentiate like normal anxiety or sadness from sure. the grief process? If I decide that I'm going to, you know, give up my alcohol use and, you know, how do I know when I'm kind of over the hump of grieving that? Is there a way to kind of tell the difference or how do you know when you're kind of like, okay, good, I've grieved this and I can move on? Well, a lot of um, what I work on with people is a process called the grief recovery method process, and it takes you through certain steps that at the end, you're feeling lighter, you're feeling better, you've, you've said all the things that you wish you had said to the person that you've lost or to the situation that has passed. It's, it's a matter of going back and um, making apologies, making forgivenesses, stating things out loud to a to a person, a partner, or um, therapist, or grief recovery specialist, or whoever it is, mm-hmm. statements that you wish you would have made, discovering things that you wish had gone differently, or you know that you had more of, or something was better, better, different, more. It's always better, different, or more uh-huh. to complete the to complete the loss. I, I really like the sounds of that. And I, and I feel like that could be, you know, useful in what we're talking about. No question. Yeah. You know? yeah. Um, journaling, writing, you know, is, is big in what I do with people. And then bringing in the mindfulness piece of it. When you are experiencing challenging feelings, we'll say, so often with grief, right? <laughs> the acronym is RAIN, R-A-I-N, so recognizing, recognizing what's going on in my body, recognizing what thoughts or feelings or behaviors are affecting us, and then common signs that something like you're having difficult feelings or challenging feelings, or you've got that critical inner voice, that nagging in, mind's an inner bitch. Mm. Um, the mm. feelings of shame or fear or anxiety or depression. So first, just recognizing that that shit's going on. Can I cuss? Yeah, oh, you can cuss. Yeah. All you, all you fucking <laughs> let her let her rip. <laughs> and then A is allowing the experience to be just as it is, and that's the hard part. That's the you know the we don't like to feel bad, mm, and right. we don't mm. like to see our loved ones feel bad. So that's why we're like, all right, time to yeah. move on, wrap it's, it up. Let's wrap this grief up and continue on. So, can you allow it to be just as it is without fixing it? Allowing the uncomfortability just to be there. And during this process, a lot of people find it comforting just to, you know, like even place your hand over your heart and offer encouraging words to yourself of it's actually okay. Like uh, feeling sad is okay. I'm going to, I'm going to live through this anxiety. I'm going to live through this sadness or whatever the uncomfortable feeling is. And it's normal. And it's normal. That's such an important step. Yep. Whatever you're feeling. And then I is the investigating and it's investigating with interest, with curiosity and care, asking the question, what, what most wants attention and where am I experiencing it in my body? What am I believing because of this? And what does this vulnerable place want from me right now? And then in is the nurturing, that self-compassion. Self-compassion naturally arises in the moments that we recognize suffering. 
So it can grow with intentionally focusing that attention on ourselves and where where the hurt is or where we're experiencing these feelings of unpleasantness in our bodies. Man, it's a lot. Fascinating. It's deep. It's a deep dive. <laughs> it's deep, man. It is a deep. It's, <laughs> it's extremely deep. It just kind of, like you said, butts heads with everything that we've just kind of been taught. Yeah. And raised and influenced to do to really open up and accept and, and, and feel comfortable in your discomfort. I don't Mm -hmm. like to cry. It doesn't make me, it makes me feel terrible. It's like extremely vulnerable. Mm -hmm. So I avoid it Yeah. and I do what I can to avoid it. And it's the opposite of what I need to do when I need, when I have something inside of me that's creating the the tendency to cry. Yeah. It's fascinating. I have a personal story. After my mom died, I was having high levels of anxiety and really just tired a lot of the time. And people kept saying to me, I think you have a lot of anger you need to release. I'm like, I'm not, I don't get angry. I'm not an angry person. I never get angry. I'm not fucking angry. I'm not freaking angry. (laughs) And, you know, I really believed this, that I, I've been through a lot in my life, and anger has not been a, one of my things. And But it, I kept hearing it, and so at some point, and, and at some point I kind of l- listened, like, all right, maybe I could let out a little anger. <laughs> but I thought, where does one, where does one like, scream? I just want to scream and yeah. see if that helps. But where can one do that without Hello. getting the cops called? <laughs> So I was driving one day in traffic, like sitting in a stoplight. I was like, all right, I'm feeling it. It's coming. There you go. (laughs) I just let out this blood-curdling scream. (laughs) And it turned into this, like, be I mean, horrible, ugly cry in the car in the middle of, you know, traffic and people passing me. And after I was finished, a few minutes later, I was like, damn, that was amazing. (laughs) Where has that been? Oh, my God. But I didn't want to feel it. Yeah. I didn't want to feel angry. I don't want to feel sad. I don't want yeah. to feel bad. So yeah. we do it. We avoid it. When we're talking about the kind of gray area drinkers that, you know, want to take their daily alcohol consumption from four drinks to two drinks or, mm-hmm. you know, two drinks to no drinks, like they're, you know, we're going to go through that grieving process to some degree. Kim, you mentioned having to recognize that. How important is it? Like when you're going through the grief process in a situation like that, where you're going from four drinks to two drinks, to just have somebody to share about this with. Yeah, yeah very. I think, um, you know, mindfulness is, a, is what I teach to people in working through grief. And certainly with when it comes to not only addiction, but just the the average person who's trying to make a change in their behavior. Mindfulness strategies are very effective, but I think that sustained change requires support and connection with another person or a group of people. What are some mindfulness techniques that that, that we could apply in order to move from four drinks to two drinks? How do we start like a mindfulness practice that would be beneficial in attempting to do something like that. Oh, that's a whole other podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Teaching mindfulness is because yeah. <laughs> this is kind of my wheelhouse. I I deal with this stuff a lot too, and I utilize this stuff 
in my you know counseling and coaching practices and i always i mean i love talking about it mindfulness yeah okay yeah. so how do you <laughs> yeah. how do you um, i mean bring up i mean but but this <laughs> is like this is kind of what we talked about in the beginning about the, i mean that that rain analogy is, is absolutely yeah. the, the acronym is great i think the the most important thing is to you know, like you said, it's like not letting your thoughts have so much control yeah. over your decision-making process. Yeah. And being able to separate our awareness and our attention from that, mm -hmm. from that narrative in our head and realizing that we don't have control over it. Yeah, and, and it's, it's a practice. It takes time yeah. getting to that point of actually, I will say that my meditation practice, I've been meditating for for years and I've had a mindfulness practice for years now and it's it's slow to to go. It's you know, it's taken a while for me to notice the effects and the benefits of having a, a daily mindfulness practice and meditation practice. And I'll differentiate there. Uh, when I talk about meditation, I'm talking about the formal practice of meditation where you're sitting and you're you're being quiet and you're noticing what thoughts are going on. That's the formal meditation, and the, and the informal part is the daily mindfulness practice where you're taking that meditation practice into your daily routine. So mindful eating, for example, mm -hmm. actually taking the time to look at your food, smell it, you know, take a small bite and taste the nuances of it and, you know, notice what thoughts are going on, what body sensations are happening. That's what I mean by like a, a mindfulness practice, incorporating that into your daily routine. It takes time to build that up. And I've noticed that for me, the biggest th benefit that has come from a meditation and mindfulness practice is that there is a pause before I react. You know, there's the um, stimulus and then there's the reaction and the pause in between those two for me has 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 become greater. Yeah. And that and that just build that gives you time to make a different choice. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So I mean I think that's aware. that's you just that was a perfect way of articulating what I was fishing for. In order to make a behavioral change like this and really have a consistent awareness of you know what's going on in your head mm -hmm. and how you're feeling in order to kind of step back and say, okay, well, normally I'd have this third drink here. Yep. And instead of just mindlessly and automatically reaching into the cooler or, you know, nodding at the bartender, you're actually aware of the process that's going on in your head mm -hmm. and in your body, and you're able to step back and say, okay, well, I'm not going to do that tonight. Mm-hmm. And that planning ahead, you know, the, the yeah. stepping back is also there's some planning ahead with that. I got to the point where I was drinking easily a bottle or two of, of wine a night mm -hmm. and wanting to cut back and, you know, planning ahead of, all right, I'm not, it's, it's not going to be all or nothing because then I'll play that shame game pretty easily yep. to myself. Mm -hmm. So planning ahead of like, what do I know happens in this situation that's going to make me want the second, third, fourth yeah. glass of wine and preparing for that pause to, to be there instead of just assuming that it's going to take place and I'm going to be able to, you know, recognize, cue, stop, pause, and react in a, in a mindful way. Oh, man. Yeah, this is fire. This is... <laughs> yeah. You know, when we talk about the preparation, <clears throat> and this is something I think we all do in our work, but when, when you know, uh, alcohol is so frequently used... To relieve 
some of those intense emotions. Often we use them to kind of suppress, yeah. you know, negative emotions, things we don't want to think about or feel. Alcohol can can help with that. Therefore, take that away, and those emotions and those things you were suppressing are tenfold, mm -hmm. you know. And so yeah. the preparation yeah. for that and discussing mindfulness and having those practices to prepare for that is invaluable. Yeah, absolutely. And that's where support comes in too. Yeah, because sometimes those it is too much to deal with on your own, those feelings that creep in. I'm not gonna be able to handle that by myself. So it's yeah. easier to grab the bottle of wine. Grab the drink. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah. I know at least for me, like I meditate a lot and I use mindfulness practices in every area of my life or at least I attempt to the way that that start it didn't happen in a vacuum it happened through like a group of people that you know I kind of hung around with and we all supported each other and encouraged each other to start exploring these practices and philosophies and there's no way I would have done it on my own mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so get with your friends <laughs> <laughs> don't be doing this shit alone <laughs> So the end of that conversation with Kim was fascinating regarding the mindfulness piece. Patrick, I know this is such a part of your practice and passion as well. For our listeners, would you give us as basic of a definition as you can for mindfulness and meditation? Mindfulness is actually considered a meditation practice. So mindfulness is meditation, mm -hmm. but meditation isn't necessarily always mindfulness Got it. from the way that we see it. I mean, there's a bunch of different forms of meditation, but mindfulness is kind of a subset of meditation. It's a form of it. But my definition of mindfulness is kind of the practice of being aware of your experience without judgment. And when I say experience, I mean your thoughts, your feelings, and your external experience, what's happening to your senses. In the moment. Yeah. Mindfulness, in its essence, is just being aware of your experience mm -hmm. in the moment. There's only one point of reference, but there's many different points of focus that you can attend to in any given moment. And, you know, one of the oldest practices is called, it's one of the two, well, from what I understand and what I've heard, it's one of the two meditation techniques that the Buddha taught, and one of them is called Vipassana. Pretty much, you're just paying attention to your breathing. And, you know, we're always breathing for the most, you know, unless we're dead. So, it, I mean, it's something that, that's always there that you can pay attention to, and it's impossible to pay attention to two things at the same time. So if you're paying attention to your breathing, you, can't, you can't think. You know, you're not, it takes away from the rat race. It's not necessarily about changing the way that you think or changing the way that you feel or managing that stuff or controlling it. It's more about accepting it as it is, hmm. not judging it, and being okay with that. Because if you can get to a point where what's going on in your head and the emotions that you're feeling in your body no longer have power over your decision-making, mm -hmm. that's like total freedom. Yeah. You're no longer being controlled by your internal experience. And that's kind of the purpose of the whole deal. It's like, you know, something can happen in my life that I really don't want to happen or I can experience something that I have some type of aversion to and my thoughts are telling me all this crazy stuff and I feel like shit. But behind that, there's still 
this awareness and the stability of okay, this is all gonna pass. Yeah, I'm gonna be okay. The probability of you making a poor choice or decision in that time frame lessens because of that awareness. And this is this is one of the things that tends to be mind blowing for some of the people that I talk about this with. And it's just something to think about and chew on. You know, we tend to believe that that little voice in our head is us. And what I always tell people, I say, well, if you think that little voice in your head is you, then what's the thing that can hear it? Mm. Mm. Oh, Patty. And that and that's that's the real you. You know, we don't have any control over that voice. Yeah. The probability of me knowing the next thought that's going to come into my head is the same as you knowing the next word that's going to come out of my mouth. Yeah. Like it just goes and goes and goes and goes and goes. Um, God, that's fascinating. Yeah, and the and the best thing we can do for that is just be aware of of that fact. Right. If you can get to a point where your relationship to your thinking is the same of you like a crazy person just like whispering in your ear, you can take what you need and leave the rest. When I'm sitting in a group doing group therapy or I'm I'm running a group in a treatment center, I'm like, look, think about how crazy it would be right now if everybody had to verbalize everything that went that's going on in their head for the next five minutes. <laughs> yeah. Crazy. I'm like, well, that's the information that you're using to make your, your life decisions off of. Right. Patrick, thank you for, for delving into that. Let's do a real quick step one, two, three for our listeners. The first step is really two steps that kind of go together. And yep. that's find some relaxation meditations, some guided meditations that you can vibe with, that you can maybe sit with and listen to that can get you to a point where you can sit still and relax for a minute. Got it. And, and while you're doing that and finding those things, engaging in them, it's also a really good idea to pick up some mindfulness literature. You know, mindfulness in plain English, mindfulness for beginners, or listening to the mindfulness lectures on the Waking Up app to give you a basic understanding of what you're doing and why you're doing it and what kind of mindset to kind of go into these things with. Kind of and un- then, understanding yeah, the conscience yeah. and awareness. All right, yeah, cool. and then, and then once, you, once you can relax and you can kind of sit in your awareness and let your thoughts and your feelings and your experience come and not really judge it, that's when the real practice comes in. Okay. And that's where you're going to have to carve out some time out of your day to sit still and sit in this space. Got it. And the longer you do that and the more separation you will create between your awareness and your thoughts, your feelings, your experience, and the more separation you have between those two things, the, the more choice you have. Got it. And then step three, make it a habit. Yeah. It, or it becomes a habit. Yeah, and once you and, and the cool thing about it is once you start to see the value in it, it'll grow organically, and you'll continue to do it and, until you get to a point where I think it was Thich Nhat Hanh, who's a you know famous Buddhist meditation teacher. I think he was on Oprah one time, and and Oprah asked him, "So how how often do you meditate?" And he said, "All the time." Yeah, I'm doing it right now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's sick. The information and opinions shared on this podcast are solely those of the hosts and guests and not a substitute for medical advice. If you feel like you may need professional help, here are some resources. For the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration hotline, call 1-800-662-4357 or visit 
samsa.gov. For listeners in the Charlotte, North Carolina community, visit dilworthcenter.org or call 704-372-6969. Or visit theblanchardinstitute.com or call 704-288-1097.